We're just starting a new series today, uh, looking at different uh, aspects of the cross, leading us through Lent uh, to Easter Day. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was talking with a member of the church, and she works as an academic at the university here in Edinburgh. Uh, And she's only arrived in Edinburgh fairly recently. And uh, she was telling me in this conversation that I was having with her that she'd been really struck by the attitude of her colleagues to her Christian faith. They approach her not with interest nor antagonism, but simply incredulity, she was explaining to me. Incredulity that someone of her intelligence could be a Christian. Why would you subscribe to this ridiculous, archaic religion, they asked her. Why would an intelligent person like you uh, want to be part of an oppressive, misogynistic, homophobic, out-of-touch church that is at odds with the world today? Why would you follow a man who was murdered uh, by the Romans 2,000 years ago? They approached her as though she had completely lost her mind. And she'd never come across anything like this before. But maybe you have. Maybe that's familiar. Maybe some of those attitudes are familiar to you. I think over the past 10, 15, 20 years, uh, many of our public institutions, our workplaces, our educational establishments, even our businesses, have subconsciously or deliberately bought into uh, this secularist dogma which claims the ground called reason and stands firmly upon it. Uh, Whereas to be a Christian maybe 20 or 30 years ago was pretty normal, Uh, most of us could have gone around and explained they were Christians and wouldn't have had the sort of attitudes uh, that that woman was explaining today. Today, some of us might meet somebody and say that we're a Christian and they might be interested. They might think we're pretty strange or they might just go, seriously? What are you on? I wonder what reaction we get when we tell people that we're Christians. A few years ago, uh, Richard Dawkins expressed his view on the abnormality of faith in his usual subtle way, and he says this, if you want to believe in teapots, unicorns, or tooth fairies, Thor or Yahweh, the Lord, The onus is on you to say why you believe in it. The onus is not on the rest of us to say why we do not. We who are the atheists are also the afarious, ateapotists, and aunicornists, but we don't have to bother saying so. He's so subtle. He's basically equating uh, faith in God with belief in anything from unicorns uh, to fairies. And for those of us who don't believe in the supernatural, he's saying we are the norm. The rest of you, you are fools, and you have to justify and explain your belief. When Francis Collins was appointed as head of the Human Genome Project, he got a huge amount of abuse uh, from his fellows in the scientific world and also in the media because it was assumed that his faith in Christ would negatively influence his science. 
This is the wisdom of the world that many of us exist in today. And to some degree, we can understand uh, this secularist view and how it's become so popular. Because faith, in its very nature, could be deemed as foolish. Because in a world dominated by science, faith just doesn't make sense, does it? Even though Christianity is based on fact and reason, reality, history, at the heart of Christianity is the cross of Jesus. At the heart of Christianity is the execution of the Messiah. And people ask, how can you believe in a God who sent his son to die nailed to a tree? Or how can you believe that you can be saved through somebody's death? It's, comp it's completely ridiculous. As Tom Wright, the theologian, puts it, the Christian good news is all about God dying on a rubbish heap at the wrong end of the empire. And this is not a new thing. It's not a postmodern or post-enlightenment viewpoint. The cross of Christ has always been a stumbling block to many. And the Apostle Paul, a scholarly and learned man in his own right, knows how the message of the cross will sound. It's madness, it's complete foolishness to believe that we can be saved through a man dying on a cross. And he states this clearly in uh, the letter to 1 Corinthians, to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross, you see, is the dividing line. It's foolishness to those who reject it but it's the power of God to those who are being saved. So how can the cross of Christ look like foolishness? Just think about it for a moment. The cross is just a cruel form of execution. One of the cruelest forms of execution ever invented. It involved humiliation. It involved days of torture often hung on a cross. I mean, Jesus had it lightly. You know, he was only on that cross uh, for around six hours. People were on crosses for days and days and days. He, uh, people um, had huge blood loss. They were in excruciating pain. Uh, bodies were ripped apart. Ultimately, uh, they suffocated. Bones were deliberately broken. And yet it has been sanitized to such an extent over the past 2,000 years that we happily go around wearing lovely silver crosses around our necklaces. We gaze at statues in churches where Jesus hangs pinned to a cross, all loin-clothed up, looking holy and serene as he dies on a cross. Would we feel differently about the cross if we were to say that salvation comes through a gas chamber or salvation comes through a lethal injection? What if we were to swap our cross jewellery for electric chairs? If we were to put a firing squad imprinted beautifully onto the front of our leather Bibles? 
That is the reality of the cross. It's a method of death. It's ridiculous. And yet at the center of God's salvation of the world is the cross of Christ. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Lots of us will remember the Piper Alpha disaster in the North Sea. It was 1988 uh, when the Alpha Piper oil platform situated uh, in the North Sea basically exploded. Uh, The platform stood high above the sea, about 175 feet uh, from the helipad to the water. And the, the people that worked on the oil rig in their health and safety training were instructed that they must never, under any circumstance, jump into the water because they would either die uh, from the impact of hitting the water from such a great height, or they would die of exposure because of the temperature of the sea. We know what the temperature of the North Sea is like. Or uh, they they would die because of the number of fractures they would get having hit the water. But as that blaze took hold in 1988, uh, the 228 workers that were on that platform that day Uh, they followed the instructions and the guidelines that were given. And of those 228 men on board, 61 survived. And they only survived because they jumped into the sea. It was an entirely foolish thing for them to do. But face of that burning oil platform, to many, it was their only option. we look at the state of our own lives, if we look at the state of the world that we live in, we cannot, by any stretch of the imagination, conclude that all is well, that we're working out this life thing on our own, own, that humans have got it sorted. Sometimes the wisest thing to do looks like it's the most foolish. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so this cross, Paul says, divides humanity, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And so we need to understand what is the message of the cross? What is this message of the cross that Paul talks about? Why does it divide? Why does it offend? And yet how does it also have the power to save? So let's just remind ourselves, what is the message of the cross? The message of the cross is this, that the creator God, the father God, so loved the world that he broke into time in the person of Jesus Christ. He became incarnate as a man. He was born of a woman and Jesus grew up and he fulfilled the law and the prophets. He went around and he did not do what people expected him to do. He healed the sick. He talked to women. women. He hung out with outcasts of the society. He lived and he taught and he restored and he made whole. And he showed us who God is and he turned upside down people's expectations. And then he was nailed to a cross. And as his blood was shed, Jesus the one who knew no sin became sin for us. 
He took upon himself the sin of the world, as we've been singing about in those last two songs. He died a sinner's death and was separated from God for three days. But because he is God, he could not stay dead. He defeated the powers of sin and darkness and death, and he rose again. He walked on this earth and was seen by over 500 people. He walked and talked and ate with them. And then after 40 days, he ascended again to his Father in heaven. And he's there until he comes again. But until that time, we have the Holy Spirit with us. And the message of the cross means this, according to Romans 10, verse 9. That if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the message of the cross. And it's that we can be forgiven, that we can be free. We can know the transforming love of the Father God. The message of the cross is that you and I and everybody else in this world can have our lives transformed by Jesus. But this whole idea that God, the creator of the universe, becomes a human and dies a criminal's death, it's absolute foolishness to those who don't believe. And yet for Paul, any attempt to establish salvation except on the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified, that is complete foolishness. In our passage here, Paul identifies uh, two groups of people, two mindsets, the Jews and the Greeks in verse, verse 22. Uh, they're using their own wisdom to try and work out the ways of God and the ways of the world. And I think as we look at them, uh, you'll see that they bear some resemblance uh, to mindsets in our world today. So first of all, he highlights the Jews. The Jews are always looking for signs. They're looking for signs. They're looking for evidence. Is this Jesus really the Messiah? They spent the whole, uh, if you look through the Old Testament, there's lots of signs and evidence. Isaiah 7, uh, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. They know the Lord will give them signs, will give them evidence when the Messiah is coming. And the cross is certainly not what they expected. The cross of Christ, then, is a scandal to the Jews. To the Jews, a crucified Messiah is a contradiction in terms. It just doesn't make sense. There's no way in their minds that the Messiah, who was supposed to be a conquering hero, who was sent to rescue them from oppression, could or should end his days hanging from a cross. This is foolishness but it's also the wisdom of God. And then there are the Greeks, Paul says, and they're searching for the answer through wisdom. And we think, well, that sounds reasonable. You know, we think wisdom is a really good thing. Uh, we sort of uh, raise up uh, wise people in our world today. But there are two ways uh, of looking at wisdom. Both ways are seen in verse 21, where Paul writes with regard to Jesus this, For since in the wisdom of God, 
the world through its wisdom did not know him. For since in the wisdom of God, he's talking here about Jesus being the wisdom of God, God in his wisdom sending Jesus. And yet we also see how in its wisdom or lack of it, the world didn't recognize Jesus. And then Paul uses this word wisdom to refer to the Greeks as well. And again, it means something different. When he talks about the Greeks, he's talking about how the sort of wisdom that people try and have when they uh, put together beautifully formed, skilled, eloquent arguments to try and make themselves look really good in front of other intelligent people. And that's what the Greeks at this time loved to do. Theologian David Pryor talks about how worldly wisdom stalked the streets and lecture halls of Corinth. The culture at the time was intoxicated by fine-sounding words and intellectual arguments. In popular philosophy at the time, uh, the wise man was described as being like a king. The wise man is king. But in all this philosophizing, in all their wise talk, the cross was a mismatch. It didn't fit. It made no sense to the Greeks in their minds. It just appeared like complete foolishness. And so Paul says, the cross is a stumbling block to Jews. And it's foolishness to Greeks. The cross makes no sense. And so the wisdom of the world empties the cross of its power. And it makes it a superficial intellectual argument. I wonder if that resonates with any of your experience. I've been in conversations uh, with friends when they've been asking me questions, and I've been trying to explain uh, something of the Christian faith and the cross, and I've just got to the point where I've, I've stopped and I've thought, this just sounds completely ridiculous. Have you ever had those moments? This sounds completely ridiculous. Where is Amy or Ewing or John Stott when, they, when you need them uh, with their beautifully formed arguments? I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm dying here trying to defend my faith. It's impossible. And it's important that we do uh, reason. It's important that we do know things like the arguments for the resurrection of Jesus. But at the same time, we also need to get our heads around the fact that ultimately, the cross and salvation through the cross will never stand up to some people's reasoning in the world. Because in our human wisdom, it's simply ridiculous. It's simply upside down, 100% foolishness. And that's because of this. Paul says in verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. So who are we to try and get our heads around the things of God? Think about the wisest person that you know. I wonder who you're thinking of. Desmond Tutu, the Reverend Cannon, Dave Richards, your grandma. God's foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of the wisest human. 
I think of human wisdom a bit like being the tram out here. Those tram lines, uh, they snake their way uh, through Edinburgh, don't they, from the airport to just outside our church here in York Place. And the thing is about tram lines is that they don't move. They're stuck in the same position. And because of that, the tram just keeps going over and over that same route over and over again. I really think that the most boring job must be being a tram driver because you don't go anywhere different, do you? Um, You just uh, are stuck on the same route from the airport through to Murrayfield and Haymarket through Princess Street through St Andrews Square and you land at York Place and then you go York Place through St Andrews Square, Princess Street, Haymarket, Murrayfield and back to the airport again day after day after day after day over and over again. Human wisdom in its very nature because we're human is limited And so as clever as we are, and I know there's some really clever people in this room, as much as we evolve as human beings, as much as we explore and discover and invent, as much as we can uncover the secrets of the world, like those trams, human wisdom and understanding ultimately always just goes over the same route. It means that even today, in a world where human wisdom has brought us to a place where we have so much and we know so much, so many people still have nothing. Where human wisdom has made us obsessed with ourselves, we face epidemics of mental illness. In a world where human wisdom means we're more connected than ever before, we're also even more lonely and isolated than ever before. Even with all this human wisdom, we cannot sort out our basic human needs. And yet we still ultimately have this innate need within all of us to be connected to each other and to be connected to God, to be known by God and to know God back. And so we have this innate desire within us to have this relationship uh, that was broken at the beginning of time, restored to our Father God. And the tram tracks of human wisdom, they don't get us there. They don't ultimately provide the answers. They don't lead us to salvation. They ultimately only lead to destruction. But God, in his very nature, is not restrained by these tram tracks. He cannot be contained. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. Every omni that we can think of. He is, his power is beyond our understanding. His ways and his words and his love for us, uh, for those he has made, just blows all human wisdom, all human understanding completely out of the water. So that even the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The foolishness of God meant that 2,000 years after a nondescript Jew from the backwater town of Nazareth was executed along the, uh, on a cross, one of many thousands of Jews who have been executed that year, the foolishness of God means that this man's execution is still causing people to stop in their tracks 
and argue and look and inquire and find out. This man who was crucified 2,000 years ago is still grabbing people's hearts and minds today. It means that in this world, over 2 billion people and many of us here claim to have had our lives transformed by the cross of Jesus Christ. And God, in all his foolishness, made that possible through the cross. It's through the cross, you see, that we can fully know God. It's at the cross that we can fully know his love. It's at the cross that we can fully know that our sins are forgiven. It's at the cross that we can know that all the shame and the guilt that we can carry has been taken by Jesus. It's at the cross that we know his mercy. It's at the cross that we know his grace. It's at the cross that we know justice. And it's at this cross that we find that we can be fully known by God. And so this cross that appears foolishness to the world is the place where our lives are transformed. Ultimately, the power of the cross is foolishness. And it can only be seen through our lives that are transformed. Why should I gain from this reward we've just sung? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. <laughs>